invite you to take out your Bibles, opening to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We continue this morning in the book of Revelation and have made our way now into chapter 2 and to the letter to the church at Pergamum. We're in this section of the book of Revelation where Christ speaks to his churches and to go along with the song we just sang, in every one of these messages to the churches, Jesus' message is the same ultimately. Uh, I am enough. I am all you need. In everything that you're going through, in your pain, in your suffering, as we saw last week in, in the church at Smyrna, uh, the answer is me. The message of the letters is not, hey, contemporary churches, be better churches by don't doing what they do wrong, but do what they do right. That's moralism. That's religion. That's the message of the, uh, the letters is consistent with the message of the gospel of Christianity as a whole. Look to Jesus. He is all you need, and it will continue to be the message this morning to the church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who have who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so, they, they, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, thus far we've looked at Christ's message to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Smyrna, which again are also messages to Covenant Life Church here in the 21st century. They are written to us. And now we come to this letter addressed to the church at Pergamum. And you notice right off the bat in this letter, what we've seen in both of the previous messages as well, he, Christ introduces himself with an image. Remember the image that John had of Jesus in chapter 1? He introduces himself to each of the churches with a particular aspect of that image that is appropriate to their situation. Now the question we may begin to ask, now this is the third time we've seen this, why does he continue doing this? And I think it's important for us to, to think in terms of this. If we here at Covenant Life Church in the 21st century are going to take a message that was written 2,000 years ago to an entirely other church, and if we're going to apply that honestly to ourselves and consistently to ourselves in a serious way that goes beyond a Sunday morning, that goes beyond when we leave here today, goes out into the world, into our homes, into our jobs, into our finances, into our sufferings, if we're going to take this message seriously for us, on a hectic Monday morning, on a Tuesday at the doctor's office, on a Wednesday when we're fighting as families. If we're going to avoid the lie that religion is just a Sunday morning thing, but Monday through Saturday we just do the best we can, then 
we have to know who the speaker is. It's by understanding who this speaker is, we feel the gravity of this message. And, and we are so captivated that we must bring it to bear, not just on a Sunday morning as we sit in this room, but as we wake up to a hectic Monday morning. We must bring it to bear on a Tuesday morning at the doctor's office or as we're battling our own physical illnesses. We must continue to bring it to bear on a Wednesday when we are battling in our relationships. So once more, I want to begin by, by taking a look at that vision that Jesus gives to John in chapter 1. That we might, as we come to this message to the church at Pergamum, we, Covenant Life Church, might take it seriously for us because of who it is who's speaking to us this morning. Go back to chapter 1, once again, looking at verse 12. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the one who speaks to us. This son of man, clothed as he is, adorned as he is, is speaking to us this morning. And you'll notice that out of that vision, he pulls out for the church at Pergamum in verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, we just read that from chapter it's obvious he's quoting from that text and he's revealing to us that there in that passage that this sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. It's his words. This sharp two-edged sword, it's a way of referring to the words of Jesus. It speaks of the power of Jesus' words. It speaks to the church at Pergamum who was in a very desperate situation that what you need most is not the wisdom of man. You need the words of the living God himself. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will do. You need to hear the words of King Jesus. It's his words that are the strength by which the Christians at Pergamum will endure, will persevere, will address the needs that need to be addressed in their lives. And so the question is, what words will this king bring to bear on the church at Pergamum this morning? What will he bring to bear upon our lives this morning here at Covenant Life Church with us as individuals in our circumstances? What, are, what is it desperate that we hear this morning? Verse 13. I know. Well, 
What does King Jesus know? He says, I know where you dwell. Now, let's just stop there. Because there's a lot of encouragement in that right there. Jesus himself saying to to you and I, I know where you dwell. It means when Christ looks at his church and sees how we're responding to him, sometimes we respond well. Other times, if you're like me, sometimes we're not responding as faithfully as we'd like to or we know that we should. But when he says, I know where you you dwell, he's saying, I take into account mercifully the context you're living in, the environment, the situation that you're in. And for you and I, it may look like this. You may feel like, let's just take, you're, you're at work. You're working in a place that's very wicked, very difficult. And you're a Christian, but your Christianity suffers because you're surrounded by unbelievers in the workplace. You're surrounded by people who mock the Lord Jesus. They mock doing things for the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps, maybe the other side of things, they say with their lips they love Jesus but they really have no interest in following him and really doing things to honor the Lord. And that kind of environment can be a drag on your Christian life. It can make it difficult for you to live faithfully into Jesus. You're kind of an an outlier because you're trying to be faithful to him. Or maybe we're foolish enough to think that, you know, if I was just in a better environment, if, if I were in a better situation than I'm at, man, I would be a much better Christian. If I was in a better location, better job, better church, man, I would be, I would be, I would be, I would be thriving so much more than I am. Well, here Christ says, "I know where you're dwelling. I know your context. I know what you're going through. I know the effect it has upon you. I know your marriage. I know your your children that break your heart. I know your grandchildren that break your heart. I know your parents." I know the church you're in. I know the city you're in. I know where you dwell. And for the church at Pergamum, he knows that they're dwelling in a very difficult place. He calls it what there in verse 13? I know you where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You know, we give cities nicknames, right? Memphis is the bluff city. Chicago's the windy city. New York is the city that never sleeps. Pergamum is Satan's city. Not literally, obviously that's symbolic, but Pergamum is a city that was, it was located, uh, the the capital city of of the Roman province of Asia, and it was well known, it was popular, not for social reasons, not for political reasons, not for economic reasons, as we saw in Ephesus. Pergamum was well known for their religion, not in the way that we, we as Christians would hope, But they're well known for their religion. And this is going to be very important for us to understand Christ's rebuke in just a minute. Pergamum was a very religious city. It was a center of worship for at least four of the most prominent false religions of the day, pagan cults of the day. When you walk into Pergamum, the first thing you're going to see on the horizon is a huge altar to Zeus. A huge platform 800 feet above the city. And those in that day said it looked like, when you walked into Pergamum, it looked like a vulture hovering over the city. I mean, this thing was so huge. Pergamum was also the center of worship, not just for Zeus, but also for the goddess Athena, for Dionysius, and Asclepios. 
But beyond these pagan deities, Pergamum was also religiously known and acknowledged for being the center for imperial worship. Now we saw this with Smyrna as well, but even more so than Smyrna. In Pergamum, that was, it was the place that was well-known, well-renowned for being devoted to the worship of Caesar. Just as Smyrna had built temples to, to some of the Roman Caesars, uh, Pergamum had built to uh, Augustus Caesar and, and was well-known for being devoted to the pagan worship of Caesar as God. And so what Jesus is telling us about Pergamum here is that evil Demonic activity, Satan himself was extraordinarily present and active in the city of Pergamum. There was a particularly powerful and concentrated manifestation of the enemy there in Pergamum. There's a sense in which Satan had made Pergamum his home base. This was the place where he had set up camp and he was bringing all of his forces to bear. And so Christ says to Pergamum, I know where you dwell. And coming to Life Church, I think there's a lot of encouragement there. This letter was written not just for Pergamum, it was written for our profit, for our benefit. Because just like those Christians at Pergamum must have been so frustrated, so overwhelmed, so defeated, everything they try, man, we're, we're in Satan's city for crying out loud. Man, nothing happens, nothing works. So too we can feel overwhelmed and frustrated by our circumstances. And tell me if this doesn't go in your mind, for you, your family, if only we were somewhere else. Why on earth did we move here? It's a mistake. We really messed up. Or... We're here and we feel abandoned by our king. Jesus says to you, I know where you dwell. And I love the picture of Christ we're getting here from the early chapters of the book of Revelation. I think it's very helpful. What has Christ revealed to us thus far about who he is and what he's doing right now? We're told in chapter 1, Christ stands in the midst of his churches, which means he's present with you and I. Here this morning, corporately, he's with us in our daily lives. Chapter 2, in the church at Ephesus, he tells us he walks among his churches. He's engaged in our lives. We see from the church at Ephesus, he knows his people's deeds. He knows the motivations behind them. Remember what he said to Ephesus? Uh, I see your deeds, you're doing all this, but I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You're doing all the right things, but you don't have the right motivation. So he's so in, in, in our lives, he, he knows even our motivations. We saw at the church at Smyrna, he knows us in our sufferings. Sometimes we feel alienated, isolated, like nobody else knows, nobody else cares. Christ says, I do. I know your sufferings. And now to the church at Pergamum, he says, I even know where you live. I know where you dwell. I know the environment that you're in. I know the temptations that you face. And I mean, this is kind of not even the main point here, but I think it's so needed for some of us this morning that no matter how hard it is to be a Christian, no matter how immersed our culture may be in unbelief and in idolatry, no matter what we face, Jesus knows our lives. He knows every intimate detail of our lives. 
And there should be great strength and encouragement in that. He knows where you dwell. He always has. He put you there. You didn't make a mistake. You don't need to rethink. Maybe we should go back to this or that. You don't have the power to thwart the plans of God. And he knows the temptations you face in your circumstance. He knows the frustrations you feel. He knows the fear that, oh man, we may have really messed up. Messed up our whole future. Messed up our children, our grandchildren. Each of us, within the sound of my voice, have been sovereignly placed where we are by the sovereign king of the universe. And Christ comforts us to say, I know where you dwell. But what else does he know about the church at Pergamum? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Again, we're in verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. And deny my faith. You did not def- deny your confident faith in me, is what Jesus is saying. You didn't deny me in that context. So Jesus knows that the Christians in Pergamum, they're in Satan's city, but man, they've, been, they've resisted. They've resisted the temptation to give in to idolatry. They're surrounded by Zeus and Athena and Dionysius. They're they're surrounded by by emperor worship. And you have fought, you have resisted the temptation to give in to those things. You've resisted the lies, the pluralistic lies that says, listen, there's all kinds of ways to God. Jesus is but one of them. They have, to no credit to them, by God's grace, been faithful to Jesus. They're not embarrassed of the name of Jesus. They're not silenced in talking about Jesus. Even though what we read next in verse 13, they had seen one of their own killed in the face of opposition. Keep reading in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here's another thing Christ knows. He knows Antipas. Now, why is that significant? Well, let me ask this question. Who was Antipas? Can anyone tell me where we find Antipas in other portions of the Bible? When you come upon this name, I think we usually go through, well, who is this Antipas? Herod Antipas, perhaps? There was a first century historian, Antipas, maybe it was him. None of them. The fact is, we never hear anywhere else in the Bible or anywhere else in the ancient writings about a man named Antipas in Pergamum. He's a nobody. A nobody that nobody today would even know his name except for the fact Christ knows him. Christ knows him. To the rest of the world, he may have been an insignificant man that nobody ever took notice of. But Christ knows him. And Christ knows that this insignificant man 
stood firm, stood against idolatry, stood against the religions and, uh, around him, even to the point of being put to death. Christ says, I know he's my faithful witness. I would venture to guess we're a room full of nobodies, a bunch of insignificant, I don't mean that to hurt your feelings. We're probably a bunch of insignificant people that, except for our closest family and friends, probably our own great-grandchildren won't even know who we were. But Christ says, I know my people. I know my sheep. I know where you live. I know what you're going through. I know the temptation. I know your fears. I know your questions. I knew Antipas. wonderful thing, isn't it? There should be hope this morning. You may have walked in here this morning feeling no one took notice, takes notice of you. Or nobody knows. Christ says he knows. But notice also, we get to verse 14, and not everything in Pergamum is great. There, there's problems in, in Pergamum, because in verse 14, we have Christ's rebuke for them. And, and what does Christ say to them? Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So this is Christ's rebuke, and it begs the question, what is he talking about? What is the problem? What was wrong in the church at Pergamum? Notwithstanding what he just said, their love for Jesus, they've resisted the, the, the pagan influences around them. The church at Pergamum had embraced to a certain level, a certain level of friendship with the world. An inappropriate friendship with the world. Now, as Christians, we always have a, uh, there, there's an appropriate friendship with the world, right? As Christians, it's, you're in the world, but not of the world. We're not trying to separate from the world. We're in the world, but we're not. Uh, that's the appropriate way. But that's not what had taken place in the church at Pergamum. The be salt and light in the world, but, uh, but that's not what was going on in Pergamum. When we take what Jesus says to them about, this, about the Nicolaitans and, and, and allowing them into the church and their influence, it becomes clear the church had become tolerant of people who hold this view. Now listen closely, because this is a message to you and I, Covenant Life Church in the 21st century. They had become tolerant of this message. Well, we're saved by grace. Our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Do whatever you want. We live by grace. We're forgiven. We have freedom in Christ. The Nicolaitans were not denying Christ. They were not denying the core tenets of the faith. They were not denying the person of Jesus. They were not denying the works of Jesus. They were not denying salvation by grace alone. Their theology was good. It was their application of the gospel that became wrong. The church at Pergamum had opened their doors to a people who had the same view of Christ as they did, 
Same view of the work of Christ. Same view of salvation that it's by grace. But we're dead wrong in their application of it. They go around, since we're saved by grace, we can live however we want. Since we're forgiven, it doesn't matter what we do with our lives. And those influences in the church were leading others to somehow feel that, well, holiness isn't that important. I'm saved by grace. I'll go to heaven when I die. I got my ticket punched. Who cares if I'm not really being conformed to the likeness of Jesus? I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want to do. Holiness just isn't that important. Separateness from the world is just not that important. And the church is not dealing with those false teachers. They're giving room for that lie to grow. It's taking up residence in the church, in their hearts. And this unholy influence is beginning to spread. I like how one commentator contrasts this. He says this, while the church at Pergamum, they've stood firm against the frown of the world. They have fallen to its smiles. They've stood firm against the persecutors, but they've been seduced by friendship with the world. And Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. I know how you've resisted against these false religions, but I got this against you. The influence of the Nicolaitans, this freedom in Christ thing that you are just taking to an excess, you're taking to an extreme. No, 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 I rebuke you. You better repent. You must repent. It's not permissible. It's a misappropriation of grace. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Because what I don't want to get lost in this message is how amazing grace is. This is not intended, Jesus' words are not intended here to, to kind of scale back on amazing grace. No, it is every bit as amazing as, as we could possibly understand. But it can be so easily distorted. John Calvin used to say about the human heart, we are idle factories. We will find a way to take the most wonderful thing and turn it to, to, to the most ungodly thing. And, and that's what was happening here in this church. Wonderful, amazing grace was being distorted. We see it in Jude. In Jude, verse 4. There's only one chapter. Jude, verse 4. They were turning the grace of God into licentiousness, freedom. Just doing whatever. And the thinking is like this. If all my sins are forgiven, and, and here's kind of the, the passage that gets taken out of context, or not taken out of context, misapplied. If there is indeed, Romans 8.1, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then there's no consequence. I don't have to be that diligent about guarding my mind, my heart, my body, what I do, how I live. Because I live by grace. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus has set me free from the law, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. The grace of God becomes, when taken to this excess, a free ticket to live any way we want to live. And we comfort ourselves with, I'm saved by grace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
All that is true, but it's true under the proper application, the faithful biblical application of grace that we see throughout the New Testament. So let's consider a little bit more deeply, who are these Nicolaitans? Who are these influences who have come in and Jesus says, I've got this against you? There's Just truthfully, there's not a lot clearly known about the Nicolaitans. What we do know, the most accepted view is this, is that they were a heretical group that was infiltrating early churches. The church at Pergamum and, and uh, we, the church at Ephesus. They came up in the church at Ephesus. They were infiltrating early churches and they believed that spiritual things, internal things, the soul was primary. Now, let me pause there and say, I agree wholeheartedly with that. The internal, the soul, the spiritual is primary. We talk about this every week when we gather. For, it's, Christianity is not about showing up at church, giving your offering, participating in the Lord's table. There must be an internal desire, hunger, thirst, craving, appetite, love for Jesus Christ. There must be internally a regeneration, a new birth, a, a new covenant, taking out of the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. And then the outside things will change. Then when you gather for church, we're bringing the right heart to it. Then when you give your offering, you're doing it out of a pure motive. And then when we come to the Lord's table, we're coming with a, a looking unto Jesus' heart. We're seeing it as a communion and fellowship with him. The root is where we start. So for the Nicolaitans, they were, their fundamental premise was the spiritual things are primary, to which we say amen. But it is possible to have too much of a good thing, right? right candy, right? Good thing, a little too much of it. Donuts, good thing, a little too much of it. Likewise, you can abuse that truth. You can abuse the truth that the spiritual is primary. And the Nicolaitans did that by going to an extreme, by their, thereby going and saying, because spiritual things are what's important, because the soul is what's important, the body just doesn't matter. The body's going to die anyway. The soul is what's important. What's in here is what's important. It doesn't matter what you do out here. And therefore, they began to... That, that opens Pandora's gate, doesn't it? If what's inside, in here, grace, condem, uh, no condemnation, the body is just inconsequential, taken to an extreme. And that opens the door to, hey, do whatever you want to do. And in a city, Satan's city, where you have all these pagan cults and emperor worship, and you have a context where, remember, these are converts to Christianity. There was a day when they used to go to the old feasts. They used to go to the, to the old idols and involve themselves in the pagan worship of the fertility gods. Which included prostitution, that's what we saw there in the text. So idolatry and sexual immorality, well, it's, it's just your body. What's important is inside here. Do, do whatever you want with the body. It's inconsequential. And it's very similar. He, 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 he parallels it with the, the Balaamites there in, in, when he talks about in, in verses 13 and 14. 
or in verse 14, I have this against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Go back and look at the book of Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25. We're not going to take the time because it's such a, a long story, but do that. What Jesus is saying is what the Nicolaitans are doing is the exact same thing that the Balaamites were doing. Exact same thing. What Balaam was to the church of the Old Testament, the Nicolaitans are to the church of the New Testament. Balaam is a prototype of those who promote compromise. Compromise with the world when it comes to idolatry and immorality. So Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell, I know your deeds, I know you, I know Antipas. Man, but the world has come over you. And those in the world are saying, listen, do we have to be enemies? Well, one of yours has already been martyred, Antipas. There's no need for any more bloodshed. There's no need for us to be enemies. There's, There's no reason for another, let's be friends. You can come and partake with us. I mean, it's just external stuff. It's just the body. The Nicolaitans were saying, it doesn't matter what you do. You're free in Christ. You're saved by grace. And then go to church on Sunday. Go worship your Jesus. We're not telling you you can't do that. That's what you are. But that's just a Sunday thing. So they entice people to compromise their Christian faith. And that's what Jesus' rebuke is all about. It's a compromising of faith in Jesus. And what's the big deal there? Christ is profaned. Christ is profaned. There is an everlasting distinction between the eternal holiness of God in Jesus Christ and sin. And when the church embraces sin idolatry, immorality, worldliness. It distorts the image of our king. Well, the church at Pergamum, they do compromise. And they're making God their enemy. And this is what Jesus says to them. We see it there in verse 16. Therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's vivid. I will come and bring judgment. I will come and bring destruction. Jesus is serious about the sin of the Nicolaitans and its influence upon the Christians there in Pergamum. You remember what Jesus said about the Nicolaitans to the church at Ephesus earlier in chapter 2? I also hate the Nicolaitans. There are things Jesus hates. He hates the Nicolaitans. Why? Because they misappropriate who he is. They misappropriate what the Father's plan of redemption, of salvation by grace through Christ is. And that salvation is looking to Jesus in repentance and faith and treasuring him and walking with him, being so transformed internally by him 
that on the outside you become transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. That's biblical Christianity. This the, the, of the Nicolaitans, inside, saved by grace, no condemnation, but on the outside, I'm just as cool as you are. I'm just as fun. I can do the things you are. Now, I may draw a line, and I'm not going to go as far as you go. That's kind of how I make myself feel better about it. Jesus says, I hate the Nicolaitans because it's ungodly, unchristian. It is compromising to who I am. Well, that's Pergamum. What about us 2,000 years later? We need to be aware of this, and I think we probably are. The Nicolaitans still go to church today. They go to church here. They may be some of our good friends, our good Christian friends. And Jesus still hates the Nicolaitans as much as he did in the church at Pergamum and the church at Ephesus. And you can never have friendship of the world and friendship with Jesus Christ at the same time. Worldliness is still an issue in the church today just as it was in the church at Pergamum. So what is worldliness? Well, we could describe it this way. It's being involved in the things that the world does. That's not the problem, because as Christians, we're in the world, but not of it. We are engaged in the world the way that the world is. But here's worldliness. Being involved in the things that the world does in the same way that the world does it, for the same reason that the world does it. So that if you're going to be just honest about it on the inside, You may throw a few Bible verses at it, but on the inside, you're no different. You may externally, like the Nicolaitans, go to church on Sunday. It's fine. I mean, sing your worship songs, pray in the prayer meeting, worship. But on the inside, Monday through Saturday, you know you're the same. Again, you may draw a line. I'm comfortable going this far. I won't go that far. But worldliness is fitting in in a wrong way. It's embracing life as though God didn't exist. It's ungodliness. Let's try this one on for size. It's living as if This is the sphere where God is, right here Sunday morning in this room. But as soon as I leave this place, it's full steam ahead into every plan I already had. I'm going to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. I may squeeze in some quiet time here or there to kind of tape some Bible verses to the inside, make me feel like it's Christian. Worldliness is waking up in the morning and asking the same question we used to ask when we were unconverted. What do I want to do with my life today? As Christians, we no longer rule our lives. We have a king. What does the king intend for for my life today? 
and what will be pleasing to him. Let me mention a few practical areas where we see this kind of compromise in the modern church. In the business world. We see this when it comes to business practices. In Pergamum, the gatherings to worship the idols often revolved around business. Again, some of the false deities in Pergamum were the fertility gods. And the fertility gods was, it was about multiplying. It was about increase. It was about you know, more children, more money, more crops, more that you, you worship, you sacrifice, and the promise was those fertility gods would bless and multiply. So you could see why a lot of the religion was around business practices. And in our day-to-day, business practices tend to be idol-dominated. Business is about you. It's about your money. It's about your advancement. And the guide for much of what's done in business is driven by those idols. What will increase me? What will increase profits? What will increase the, the bottom line for the business? Not driven by what pleases the king. And if you work with unbelievers, you will be pressured to make choices that require you to cut corners. When the boss asks you to do something in violation to Christ, you have to be able to draw a line and say, I can go thus far without compromising, but I can't go any further. I'm willing to work extra, do this, 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 and this, because it's consistent with my faith, my Christian walk, but I can't go where you ask me to go. What about in our home? We draw lines when it comes to our kids. Our children, they're growing up, our grandchildren, they're growing up in an idolatrous world. And they want to fit in. And we want our children and grandchildren to fit in. And we as parents, we're trying to figure out how to help them get plugged in safely. So we draw a line in the sand and say, uh, when it comes to our children, uh, we'll let you watch this but not that. Go here but not there. Do this but not that. And and the funny thing I'm learning as a parent, every parent kind of draws that line differently. And I think there's freedom in that. And parents and my parents, grandparents love to kind of re-put that line somewhere else for you. Hey, it's cool, it's fun. But the thought is sometimes we make idols for our children. They're going to be weird if we don't let them do this or that. And there are all kinds of idols when it comes to our sports, academics, social acceptance, Success. Now, those don't look like idols because we want the best for our children and grandchildren. But there are real opportunities to say, even as we want the best for our children, to say this, but Jesus is real enough. He is enough. When it comes to church, in the Old Testament, Worship of the fertility gods had two elements. Number one, you had an idol that promised blessing. You go and make sacrifice to the fertility gods, and you'll be blessed, you'll be multiplied and increase, more kids, more money, more success. And the second thing you had in the Old Testament worship system was sensual worship. The indulgence of sensuality. Now, I'm not solely talking sexually there. That's an aspect of it. But I'm talking about you you had an indulgence of the senses, of tasting, seeing, hearing. 
It thrilled you. It excited your senses. And, and in the church, there's the, 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 the idol temple. You go and, and, and you want to worship this God, but here's the problem. The fertility God that you worship is not a real God. It promises blessing. It can't promise it. So you better find something else to attract people to your religion, right? I mean, you got these two promises, a, a God who's going to bless, but he's powerless. He can't do anything. You better make worship sensual. You better make it about exciting. You better make it thrilling. Otherwise, no one's going to want to come. And so you offer people a religion where they are the center, where they will come and they will be entertained. Their senses will be captivated, their sight, their sound, their smells, the feel, the touch, so that even if that God lets them down, they will walk away and say, but that was a great experience. I'm going back for more of that. And the church today is tempted to compromise in the same way, isn't it? We look at the church and we say, well, what we need, we need unbelievers to come in and we need unbelievers to grow and to be converted. But, but how do we get unbelievers in here? Well, they're not going to come to a prayer meeting. They're not going to come to our worship. We don't have smoke or fogs or lights or lightning or thunder. And Jake, you're a nice guy. They sure ain't going to come listen to you. The church has, nonetheless, has to draw a line and say, if they come for anything other than Jesus, we're not doing them any good. Jesus is enough. Rutherford quoted on worldliness. Rutherford said this from prison, and this is a quote from him, Christian, you will find that God aims in all of his dealings with his children to bring them to a high contempt of and a deadly feud with the world. To set a high price upon Christ. To think him one who cannot be bought for gold, yet well worth fighting for. And for no other cause does God withdraw from you the childish toys and the earthly delights that he gives to others, except he wants you holy unto himself. He wants you entirely captivated by Christ. Takes away, let, let the other churches, let the other, other, other homes, let the other businesses, let them have their toys, their mechanisms, their ways. My delight, God says, is that you would be wholly entranced by Christ and that he is enough. And it's for that reason you have the, the serious warning here. And in verse 16, church at Pergamum, repent. Repent. Repentance is such an important word. It means to return. But let me be very clear about this. What are we returning to? It is returning to a person. It is returning to the king. Repentance from worldliness or repentance from the worldview that says I'm free in Christ to live however I want to live because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There is a temptation for repentance in that context to be, well, I better return back to rules. I better get my life straight today. And obviously, obedience does matter. So let me get back to the rules and obedience and faithfulness. To which I would say, not yet. You're missing something vitally important before you get there. We must go back to the king first. What did he say to the church at Ephesus? I know your deeds. I know your faithfulness. I know your obedience. I know your love. I know you're doing all the right things, but I have this against you. What? You've lost your first love. Christ is not there. You're obedient, but Christ isn't there. Therefore, I rebuke you. I condemn you. I call you to repent. Repentance means not first and foremost, well, let me go back to obedience. It means first, let me go back to the king, to the one whom I've turned against, to the one I've misappropriated him. I've misappropriated his work upon the cross. I've taken that wonderful salvation by grace for which there is no condemnation for those who are, and I've made it all about me instead about the wonder of what he endured to make that possible. And I wouldn't dare, dare do anything to betray the one who has made it possible that before a holy God, I could have no condemnation. I've turned away from him. I've made it all about me. That's not about me. We return to the king. We come, we get back, and we're honest about Christ. I've not been walking with you. I go to church, I have my quiet time, this, that, and the other. But I've not been walking with you. Because walking with you leads to a life of obedience, of faithfulness, of holy everything unto you, of no compromise. But I've turned away from you. And so when Jesus says repent, it is not first and foremost return to an ethical code, return to a standard, return to the law. It is return to Return to the one we betrayed. Christianity is a person. We, from the very beginning in Genesis, that's salvation, Christianity, redemption. Genesis 3.15 was about a person, a seed of the woman who's going to come and do for us what we, it's a person. The Old Testament's foreshadowing a person. The angels sing on the night about a person. The disciples live faithfully unto Jesus even because of Jesus' influence upon them. And in the book of Revelation, the exclamation point on the whole Bible, we're only in chapter 2, but the message of John is not, let me tell you about the future, it is Jesus. It's a person. And repentance is returning to a person. It's a person-oriented event. And here's the promise that he gives to them. In verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, that that would be true for us. That this morning we've made room in our hearts to hear from our King. And where there is compromise in our hearts, we would hear what the King says. And he continues, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Those are the promises. Now listen, I'm just like you. I read that and I'm like, I'm not exactly motivated by that. I don't know what in the world you're talking about. A hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. How does that entice me to return to my king? I think it's helpful to see that these promises address three fundamental lies that worldliness or compromise tells us. The first lie is that, you know, the world around you is so attractive. There's a lot of good things in this world, things that that are so bright and shiny and fun and filling. But, oh, poor follower of Christ, you just don't get to enjoy any of those things. That's the lie, isn't it? You're not allowed to have any of it. Your master, your king is a hard master. He just, he's a killjoy. You look at your friends and you look at the world around you, all the, he doesn't let you do anything. If you don't compromise, man, your life is going to be so dull, so boring, so dry. Yet Jesus says to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. To address that lie. You remember in Old Testament history when they were, uh, Israel was in the wilderness, they were facing their own hard environment. God miraculously supplied everything that they need food, manna from heaven, right? It was enough, it was sufficient. We read in the New Testament that the manna from heaven was a picture of Christ. It's Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. And in the New Testament church, like in Pergamum, they too, they're in a hard environment. And yet God says, man, I will supply your every need. I'll provide you the bread of life, Christ himself. And through the Holy Spirit, continually bringing Christ to bear upon our lives. And for you and I today in the 21st century here, Covenant Life Church here in in, in Olive Branch, we too have our own harsh environment that we're living in this morning, right? Our suffering, our physical pain, the grief that we're bearing from lost loved ones, the fears that we have, maybe I'm in the wrong place. We live in a harsh environment where maybe this morning you get feeling like spiritually you're starving to death. That if you don't have Jesus plus something in the world, man, you're missing out. But here Jesus says, if you're faithful to me, I will give you the hidden manna. You may feel like you're going to starve to death, but I'm bringing to you the bread of life, me. Me. And so you come to the king and you say to him this morning, king, man, I am tempted to compromise. I am tempted that you are not enough and that in addition to you, I need this, 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 and this to be happy. Today, I need you. And when you do that, Jesus promises you will find the happiness of being so perfectly supplied with everything that you need in the fullness of who Jesus is that it will be the world who doesn't understand how you can be so satisfied, so joyful when you don't have the things that they have. Do you see? The second thing we hear, the white stone, there's another lie that worldliness tells us. Not just worldliness tells you not only that you're going to starve to death, worldliness tells you this, and tell me if you don't hear this this morning. 
you're going to be forever isolated and alone. You're going to be forever isolated and lonely. Yet Jesus says, I will give to you a white stone. There are different uses of white stones in the first century, but ultimately what Jesus is talking about here, when in Pergamum you needed to get into a civic event, if there was a play at the theater, you would pay your money and they would give you a white stone. And that was your entrance into that community event. And Jesus is here saying, Christian, you may fear that by living faithfully unto me, you're going to be stranded, isolated. There may be even Christian friends who look at you and say, you're not living out your freedom in Christ. Listen, we can't do it anymore. This can't happen. And you feel lonely and isolated. Jesus here says to the one who overcomes, I'll give you a white stone. You will be admitted eternally into the greatest company ever, into eternity with Jesus Christ, your King. And then finally, a third lie. The worldliness tells us, all right, worldliness will say to us, all right, Mr. and Miss Christian, you're going to draw your line in the sand, you're not going to compromise, fine. But you know this, on the inside, it's tearing you up. On the inside, you know. You're no different from the Jesus plus people. You're no different from the people who who live ungodly, worldly lives. On the inside, you may paint it up well, and you may be trying to preach to your heart, but inside you know you're just a hypocrite. At the core of your identity, to which Jesus says, I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I think the simplest way to understand this, when the world says, you're a hypocrite, you're still the same, you still have those same desires, your conscience knows it's true. Christ says, if you cling to me to the end, that admittance stone into my company forever that I have for you, We'll have a completely new identity, a new name. This is a beautiful picture of the doctrine of adoption. We were, the, the world is right. At the core of our being, we are still fundamentally, there's a sin nature. And there, we are always battling hypocrisy. And the flesh and our conscience wants to, to bang us down and say, you're no different, you're no different, you're scum. But here we have the promise. Cling to me through it all. And though you were in the same family as the ungodly, you will have a new name. Remember in the Old Testament when God invades a people or a person, in a wonderful way, he gives them a new name. The most obvious example of that is Jacob, right? In Genesis, Jacob, his name means liar, deceiver, the one who clung onto his his brother's foot. Then he meets God, and God renames him Israel which means a prince with God, an entirely new name. Something had happened in Jacob's soul that takes him from being a guy that lies to being a prince with God. And this morning, we're not here saying that we're robots. 
And we're not here saying that the temptation to compromise is not real. It is. It's hard. That's why Jesus gives these promises. He knows it's going to be hard. And until the transformation of sanctification to glorification is complete, it will continue to be difficult. But the promise is, cling to Jesus, and you will be made whole. You will be made right. You will be made like him. You will have on that rock, on that stone, a new name. You maybe used to be known as whatever sin you struggle with. But you will then become a new name, a new person. You know, this morning, we look at a passage like this that was written to Pergamum before us. It can be a bit of a wake-up call. Pergamon was a church. They had all the right doctrine, the right theology. They were saying all the right things, saved by grace, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All that was right. The problem was they were misapplying it. They had made it about them instead of about him. And it may be this morning, you and I are looking at our own hearts, and we have to admit some idols have crept in. Salvation by grace is about Christ, worshiping Christ, who Christ is. But I put an idol in that place. I've made it about me. I've made it about whatever your idol is. So where do we start this morning? I don't want want anyone to this morning be beat down by maybe you've lived days, weeks, months, years like a Nicolaitan. The, the, The intent here is not to, to beat us down. It is to say, then now go to the king. Go to the king and say to him, I'm seeing that I've allowed a lot of things to creep in. I've been careless. I've been careless with the gospel. I've been careless with you. I've been careless with the cross. I've been careless with the salvation by grace. I've been careless with Romans 8.1. I've been careless with, and I've somehow begun to say to myself that obedience is not as important that I live by grace, and I've let others influence me down a wrong path. And so, King, I come to you, and I plead. Show me you again. Show me the fullness of you. Make my joy in you. Help me to find in you everything, a bright picture of you again. Go back to those images from Psalm 110. Give me this clear picture of who you are, that in you all my hope would be found. I don't know how this message to Pergamum, and which is a message to us, applies to you, but my guess is there's a piece of Nicolaitans in all of us. Run to the king. Run to him. Repent. He's waiting.